Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All righty, if you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 19. This is sermon 42, because nothing beats a 42-week sermon series. And uh, we're a new church. We're just two and a half years old, but I thought, what better thing to do with a whole year than to just look in great detail at the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to establish a firm foundation for our future together. And uh, today we are going to be talking about the cross of Jesus. John's gospel, it basically breaks into two portions up to and through about chapter 12 is all of Jesus' first 33-ish years from John 13 till the end is literally the final days, the last week culminating in the crucifixion of Jesus. The entire storyline slows down for the most significant series of events, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the history of the world. And as we get into the issue of the cross, I don't want to assume that you fully understand what the cross means. I did not as a kid. I was thinking about it this morning on the drive in. I was a kid who grew up going to church upon occasion and the church that we attended, it had a cross on the top. And then as you'd walk in, the doors had crosses and the water fountain had crosses and the baptismal font had crosses and the hymnals and the the song books in the pew back had a cross on them. And right in the front of the church was a big cross and it had a carving of Jesus hanging on that cross. And we were taught as kids, anytime you pass by the cross, literally out of respect, you should kneel, they call it genuflecting, just to honor Jesus on the cross. We sang songs about the cross. And as a kid, I was given as gifts, necklaces with a cross to wear. And here's the truth. I saw a lot of crosses, but I didn't hear a lot about the cross. So I knew what a cross looked like, but I didn't fully understand what the cross meant for me personally. Many of us just assume far too much and we understand far too little. And and what I realized when I became a Christian in college and started studying the Bible is that though I had seen a lot of crosses, I had not heard a lot of teaching about the cross of Jesus. As a result, I had this misunderstanding that I had any real understanding. And so I wanna start by explaining to you the cross in general, and then we'll look at the cross of Jesus in particular. And for Christians, this is the symbol or sign or logo, if you will, of our faith. Those of you who are in marketing or advertising or business or brand establishing, you know that one of the most important things you can do is to choose your logo. And that symbolizes, it typifies, it embodies all that an organization or a movement or a people group are really committed to. So if you drove here in a Chevy truck uh, on the tailgate, you have a what? A bow tie, that's the logo. Uh, For us in the United States of America, it's the flag. Um, If you're an athlete wearing Nike shoes, you're gonna have the swoosh and that's gonna cost you extra, right? Because now you're identified with Nike Nation, but it's the symbol. And what's curious is that for thousands of years, Christians have had one symbol that we have chosen to be the sign, the symbol, the summation of our faith, and that is the cross. And no one's exactly sure how this was chosen. Other potential logos and symbols were considered by the first Christians. Uh, They considered, for example, a a dove because the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus' baptism in the form of a dove. But but now that's been co-opted and stolen. It's interesting. 
In addition, they considered a rainbow because God put a rainbow in the sky after the flooding of the earth in the days of Noah as a covenant sign that he would never flood the earth again. And that too has been stolen and co-opted. It's interesting that Satan seems to take even Christian symbols and repurpose them to work against the kingdom of God. And what we find with the cross is that the early historians tell us that Christians seem to have started using the cross as our symbol and logo in about the days of an early church father named Tertullian. And it was unusual that this was chosen because as one of the old hymns says, it was the emblem of suffering and shame. It was the most shameful and painful way to die. It was the most dishonored, disrespected symbol because the person was disregarded who was crucified. Yet Christians started making the sign of the cross. I was taught to do this as a little boy. Christians started wearing crosses to identify themselves publicly with the the crucified Jesus. When we would visit Greece, Israel, Turkey, places that Christianity first started, we went to the archeological digs as a family on a few occasions and many years ago. And as you would walk into the ancient cities like Ephesus and others, you would see marble laden streets that would have ancient carvings of crosses in them. It was so so that visitors to the city would know the church is here and God's people are here. Uh, When I was in Turkey in Ephesus some years ago, it was right around the same time that at the city gates where everyone would pass in, they excavated that archeological ruin. And right there at the front gate was a carving of a large cross declaring that the Christians were present in that city. And a historian that we were traveling with and was aiding us, he said that the early Christians would put on the outside of their home a cross so that if you're new to town, you see at the city gate, so the Christians are here. You're walking into town, the Christians are here. Oh, and there's their house. And if you were in need, perhaps of a place to reside, you could go knock on the door and they would treat you as family, brother or sister, and welcome you into their home if you were a Christian. Christians have always held the cross as something sacred, though as the Bible says, it is foolishness to those who do not know Jesus. And when it comes to this issue of the cross, crucifixion in that day, like our day, truly was state-sponsored terrorism. This was to strike terror in the hearts of citizens. If you were part of a group or you were following a particular leader, they would take the person that was in authority and they would publicly execute them by shameful and painful crucifixion. And it was a warning to everyone else, do not believe what they believe, do not behave how they behave. And if you were following them, you will suffer the same fate that they are suffering. This was the equivalent in our day of a live stream beheading on the internet. To this day, we don't see a lot of crucifixions, but they still do occur, usually among radical religious groups. Uh, The BBC uh, quoted uh, Dr. Uh, Sheikh Usama Hassan, and he says that crucifixion is still conducted by groups such as ISIS and terrorist groups of radical Islam. And he said his base quote, from a very literal or fundamentalist reading of the Quran. So there are certain religions and extremist leaders to this day who would say that certain infidels, that would include especially me, um, are deserving of jihad or holy war and crucifixion as Jesus was crucified, okay? And they will even mock us calling us worshipers of the cross. We're not worshipers of the cross, we're worshipers of the one on the cross, okay? 
We don't worship a piece of wood. We worship a man who died on a piece of wood that we could be forgiven of sin. Now in this, the Bible does not give a lot of details regarding crucifixion in general or the crucifixion of Jesus in particular. You're going to see it as we jump into John 19 that he actually only uses one word, crucified. I believe that the reason that we do not hear a lot of details is because for the original recipients of both the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the letters to the churches, they were eyewitnesses to crucifixions. And if you saw one, nobody had to explain it to you. You would never forget it. Crucifixion happened commonly and publicly. When Jesus was a little boy, there was a revolt, an uprising of Jewish leaders against the Roman government and to quelch and to put down that riot, there was a mass crucifixion of Jews and Jewish leaders. Jesus may have seen that as a little boy, and if so, it's just curious to speculate if he knew that that was his destiny and future. On the day that Spartacus fell in battle, history outside of the Bible records that 6,000 men were crucified in a single day along a 120 mile stretch of Roman highway. Of course, they didn't have cars, but just fathom for a moment that you jumped in your vehicle following our service and drove to Tucson or maybe up to Flagstaff and along the shoulder of the road were 6,000 men crucified, bleeding, screaming, dying, incontinent, cursing. Their families are present mourning and their enemies are present cheering. This was the state of crucifixion. And it was done in the most public of places. And it was done on the most populated of seasons. As we've been studying the storyline of John's gospel, they are seeking to crucify Jesus, the religious leaders are, before their religious holiday of Passover. Reason being that during the Passover season, the population in Jerusalem has swelled greatly. Their city was like Scottsdale. This is the time of year when there's a lot more people here, amen? So if you live here, you know that now you can't go to a restaurant, you can't drive on the freeway, you can't get a hotel room and you can't golf anymore. It's over, okay? Everybody comes here for this season. Population increases. There's a lot more buzz and activity. This is similarly what happened in Jerusalem around the holidays, which means holy days. Massive numbers of people would come into Jerusalem, population would swell. The reason that they are seeking to murder, to execute, to crucify Jesus at this time is the same reason that we have clickbait on the internet is because they're trying to get as many eyeballs as possible on the event. And the reason they want him to die before the Passover is because once the Passover is ended, what happens? Everyone goes home, there's less eyeballs on the murder. So for them, this would be like their day before Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve. The goal is let's murder Jesus as fast as possible because we need to get home to have dinner with the family. And that's the context of John chapter 19. Now, crucifixion was painfully slow death by asphyxiation. Now, as I explain this, some of you don't know this and it's an honor to teach you. Some of you know bits and pieces of this. I wanna add to your learning. Some of you know much of this, but it's good to be reminded. Crucifixion was painfully slow, death by asphyxiation, because as you're being crucified, you can imagine being nailed with the equivalent of 
railroad spikes through the most sensitive nerve centers in the human body, the hands and the feet, your body weight would slouch on the cross. You would be exhausted and tired and dehydrated and, and you would be in the process of dying. And as you slumped on the cross, your lungs would be incapable of retaining air. So you would start to pass in and out of consciousness. So you'd push yourself up on your nailed feet and pull yourself up on your nailed hands to garner more air in your lungs. And this process of going in and out of consciousness and slowly dying by asphyxiation, history outside of the Bible records that someone could remain on the cross in that state for upwards of nine days. Have you ever choked? Have you ever had trouble breathing? Have you ever been underwater and unable to get air? Have you ever had anyone choke you? Have you been so sick that you couldn't breathe? Nine days. Nine days. Generally speaking, people were crucified basically at eye level. Some of the Christian artwork that shows the cross is very high was probably inaccurate. They were probably crucified at or just above eye level. So you're literally looking that person in the eye as they die. Men were crucified facing the crowd. People would jeer and spit and mock. In an effort to seek some sort of vengeance, men would urinate on the crowd, they would spit on the crowd, they would curse out the crowd. Meanwhile, what would gather beneath their body was sweat and blood and tears and feces and urine. On rare occasion, a woman was crucified, but even that barbarous culture didn't want to see the facial expression of a crucified woman. And so they would literally turn the woman around to face the cross because they could not face her face. What all people groups in that day agreed upon in the Roman empire is that if you were crucified, this was as horrific as it could potentially be. Roman citizens were not crucified Cicero, the ancient Roman, he said that Roman citizens should not even mention or speak of crucifixion because it was too barbarous and inhumane. The Jewish historian Josephus called it, and I quote, the most wretched of deaths. When it comes to the word of God in Deuteronomy, I think it's 21, it says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. They are cursed of God. Paul quotes that in the New Testament book of Galatians saying that Christ was cursed for us. He endured the full wrath of God on the cross and the father literally cursed the son. How many of you are fathers and have sons? Can you imagine sending your son to this fate for your enemy? Not only did Jesus suffer, so did the father. When someone was crucified, they were dishonored, they were disregarded, they were literally disgraced. To be disgraced is to be a person without grace. Some of you understand this issue of shame because you come from an Eastern, Middle Eastern, Near Eastern, East Asian country. In those cultures and countries, saving face is incredibly important because you don't want to do anything to bring shame on your family. This is an Eastern context. This is an Eastern family. And when someone was crucified, shame came upon the entire family. 
And again, sometimes when the person died on the cross, the family didn't even claim the body and give it a burial with the rest of the family members in the burial plot on the family homestead. They allowed that body to be thrown in the dump because that person was disgraced, they were disregarded, and as a result, they were altogether rejected by their family and disowned. Friends, this is as bad as it could potentially be. Furthermore, as we consider the crucifixion of Jesus, let me revisit the painful, slow process by which we have come to the cross. All the way back in John chapter 13, where the book makes its pivot from you know, the entire life of Jesus to the last week of Jesus. Jesus sat down to eat the last supper with his disciples, the Passover meal. We read in John 13, 27, that Judas Iscariot, his counterfeit disciple and his pretend friend who had been stealing money from him and plotting against him, Judas is the prototypical example of the one who is covert and not overt. You don't know what it is he is doing until it is too late. It says in John 13, 27, that Satan answered Judas Iscariot. What had happened in heaven is that Satan declared war on Jesus and he lost that war and he was sent down to the earth. And then he invited our first parents, Adam and Eve, to participate in that rebellion and coup attempt. And they sided with him and in so doing, they voted on behalf of all humanity. Jesus comes down to liberate us and he brings the fight to Satan and Satan recruits Judas, works through Judas. So this is John's way of telling us behind all of this is a demonic counterfeit attack on our king and his kingdom. We are then told that Jesus spent an entire night sleepless in anguish, that he was sweating like drops of blood while his friends slept. They failed him in his moment of greatest need. Sleepless, in the middle of the night, Judas shows up, we looked in John's gospel, with soldiers from the political and the religious leaders. 600 armed Roman soldiers with clubs, swords, and torches, we learn, and also the religious soldiers came together in an unholy alliance against a common enemy. Judas had been plotting this for a very long time. You do not get Jews and Romans who despise one another to align with one another. You do not get the legal permission to arrest and try and crucify. And you do not assemble a small military operation unless you've been working on this for a long time. Jesus is then arrested. He is falsely tried. He is then beaten, we are told, over the course of a night. They covered his eyes so he couldn't see it. And a mob of men encircled him and they each took shots pounding him. We looked in John's gospel last week. It simply says that they then took him and had him scourged. I explained to you that scourging was a flagrum or a cat of nine tails from which would proceed straps of leather. At the end of each would be a ball made out of metal or stone to tenderize a man's flesh so that then the equivalent of fish hooks could sink deeply into the man's flesh. There would be two Roman executioners, one on each side. The man was stripped nearly naked and his body was extended over a pole or a large rock. And then they would literally rip the flesh off of the man's body Historians say that on occasion, a man's rib would come flying off of his body. That eventually his flesh, his skin would be in the breeze like small ribbons. Isaiah said that he would be marred beyond human likeness. 
that if you knew Jesus and you saw him, you would not recognize him. Many men died from the flogging. Many men died from the scourging. Those who were not crucified, many of them were mentally, emotionally, spiritually broken, and they never recovered. This is like a soldier that goes into a POW camp and has PTSD and is never the same again. It mentally broke men. It physically broke men. It emotionally broke men. It spiritually broke men and it didn't break Jesus. He went through the flogging and then he went to the point of crucifixion. At this point, Jesus has not slept. He is dehydrated. He is hungry. He is exhausted. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record similarly the suffering and the death of Jesus. I believe that John writes last. He's the last living of the disciples. 60% of the first three gospels is shared material. 90% of John is unique. I believe he is the last living disciple and eyewitness at the point of his writing. He's an old man. When he started following Jesus, he's a young man. And he is filling in the gaps with any potential material that would be omitted, but he's not repeating material that's already been recorded because he knows the word of God. And what we find in some of the other gospels is that as Jesus was carrying his cross bar, and it was probably the cross bar, not the cross, a full cross would have been hundreds of pounds. A cross bar would have been maybe a hundred pounds. If you've ever picked up a large railroad tie that is roughly hewn timber, you have something equivalent to what Jesus carried. And they set this hewn timber on his barren, bloodied and battered back. They put a crown of thorns in his head to mock him as a king. They force him to carry his cross. And what you might find interesting is to carry it through a narrow corridor in a public shopping district. It's called the Via Dolorosa. It's in Jerusalem. If you go there, you can actually walk this path. And it's in the old city of Jerusalem and the, the square footage within the walls is tight. So everything is at a premium. This is where people would go to conduct business and shop in small retail outlets. Consider it like Chelsea Market in New York or um, the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul or Pike Place Market up in Seattle or Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. Some place where lots of people gather and there are very small shops and it's very hard to walk through because especially during tourist season, it's a very populated place. This is where they made Jesus carry his cross. Between the walking to his trials and his beatings and his floggings and his crucifixion, he walks a few miles, perhaps anywhere from half a mile to a mile carrying that cross. And he's having to navigate around children and women who are shopping. Ladies, imagine you go to Kierland, you go up to the Desert Ridge Marketplace, you're out shopping and here comes some guy bleeding, screaming, people are taunting him, mocking him. They're placing bets for how long he's gonna live. You're trying to get your little kid out of the way. You're trying to shield your eyes because you don't wanna see this. Who is that guy? That's Jesus. What did he do? He said he was God. Moral of the story is, don't follow him. This is what we'll do to you. All of this culminated with Jesus carrying the cross, though he was strong and healthy, 
he fell. Medical experts would tell us that in his state, carrying that much weight with his arms extended, this would be the equivalent of a head-on collision in a car crash with no seatbelt and no airbag. This is a deep chest contusion. Unless you get medical attention, you are in the process of dying. Finally, Jesus arrives at his place of crucifixion. The one who is a carpenter now has nails driven through his hands and feet, the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body. The crossbar is connected to the pole and it is lifted up and Jesus' body shakes as it is dropped, the cross is into the hole. And there Jesus sees all of his enemies. And all of this happens in a place called Golgotha. We'll read this in a moment. It means place of the skull. I'll show it to you. This is Golgotha. Here's what I want you to know. The Bible is about historical events that actually occurred and archeologists confirm, okay? That, that the Bible is actual, it's historical and it's factual, okay? This place exists, Golgotha, place of the skull. Now, just at first glance, you can tell why it's called that, amen? What's it look like? A skull, and a skull is always typified of death. So it looks like eyes and a nose, this looks like a skull. Now, Jesus was likely crucified at the top of the hill and right at the base of the hill. To this day, there is a very popular roadway that people travel on as they're coming and going. Why do they crucify Jesus up on the hill? So everyone could see him. Today, this is a Muslim graveyard. Christians cannot go there. We've been cut out. You could see at the bottom of the photo, the tops of buses. It's because in front of Golgotha has been built a large bus transfer station. You can't get a clear close view or a great photo of Golgotha because they built a business in front of it and then packed it with buses and transportation behind it so that Christians cannot get to it from the front or from the top. We are excluded from Golgotha, the place of Jesus' crucifixion. When we were in Israel, I really wanted to get this photo. And so I went to the bus transfer station and I walk in and there's a ton of people coming and going and working and the back is all chain link fence. And at the top there's big barbed wire and you can't get anywhere near Golgotha. And I told the guy, I said, I wanna get on the roof and get a photo. He's like, we do not allow anyone on the roof. No one has ever been on the roof. No one is allowed to take a photo. I said, well, give me the highest rank. Give me, you know, give me up the food chain. Give me the highest ranking guy. Give me the guy who's the boss. He comes in, I said, I'm a pastor from America. I want that photo. I said, I think Christians have a right to have that photo. We need to see where Jesus died. And he said, I'm a Muslim. I'm not a Christian. He said, but God told me in a dream last night that you were coming. He said, so if you're the holy man, follow me. And I literally thought, I'm not sure I'm a holy man, but I will follow you. <laughs> God gave him a dream the night before that I would come and ask for a photo and God told him to allow me to take the photo. And so he said, we have to hurry. He didn't wanna be caught. 
So I follow him back into the office. We go upstairs, we go up janky little back stairs. Next thing I know, we're up in some storage closet in the corner of the bus transfer station. They take us into this other little closet and there's one of these fire ladders up to the roof. And I get out on the roof and finally I get a clear shot of Golgotha and that's the photo. And he's like, hurry, 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 hurry. We need to go, we need to go. And I said, do you know what happened there? I said, we murdered God there. He said, we need to go. I said, no, you need to hear about Jesus. So I took a bit of time and I preached a sermon to one Muslim guy on top of the bus barn looking at Golgotha. I don't know if he got saved, but I, I tried to close him. I did my best. So I'm telling him what happened there because here's the truth. He worked there and he didn't know the story. Right, every day he's looking at where God loved him and he doesn't know the love of God. It's just amazing that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. You could be working at the place where Jesus died for you and not see the love of Jesus. So let's pick up the story in John chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross, he's carrying it to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, which I just showed you. There they crucified him. John just gives us one word. Why am I telling you about crucifixion? Because I think sometimes we do not take the time to understand what it really means and what he really endured. God loves you. Jesus died for you. It's all true. But unless you unpack the significance of that event, there can be a lack of appreciation for the fullness of Jesus' suffering. There they crucified him. With him were two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Those two men were guilty. This was in fulfillment to the prophecy given 700 years prior in Isaiah 52 and 53, that he would be crucified, that he'd be executed with two wicked people, with a wicked in his death, one on either side, Jesus between them, Pilate. Pilate is the, he is the, uh, he's the Roman leader. He is the political leader. So what you've got here, you've got religious leaders and political leaders conspiring together. They do not like one another, but they both share a common enemy in Jesus. So they form this unholy alliance. And Pilate in the four gospels on seven occasions says publicly, Jesus is innocent, he's a good man. Yet he still murders Jesus because he does what he thinks is politically expedient, not right in the sight of God. All right, we need to think long-term, not short-term about what is right and not just what is best for us. The tragic tale of Pilate, he knew Jesus was innocent, yet he murdered him. Pilate then went on to get promoted, his career moved forward. History outside of the Bible tells us that Pilate not only killed Jesus, he took his own life. He took his own life. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The reason that Jesus is being executed is because he keeps saying that he's God. The religious leaders saw that as a threat because it put him over them. The political leaders saw that as a threat because they would say Caesar is Lord and here Jesus is saying, no, he's not, I am Lord. And so he, Pilate, puts the charges up publicly, Jesus, King of the Jews. And it's his way of sort of 
taking a shot at the religious leaders. Uh, next slide, please. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, three languages. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews. These guys want to copyright or copy edit, I should say, the, the death sentence of Jesus. This is how religious people are, copy editing when they should be repenting. The problem with religious people is this, they use the Bible as binoculars, all your problems, not a mirror, my problems. Their, their biggest concern right now is, you know, we have, a, we have a typo on the murder of God. What doesn't bother them is the murder of God. What bothers them is they think that this could be copy edited and it could be a little cleaner. It just goes to show that some people can strain over little things and miss big things. It just goes to show that you can be so consumed with petty nothingness that you miss the infinite. They're murdering God and they think, well, the real problem is we should rephrase the reason that we're killing him. It's, it, it's, it's amazing to me because great evil happens when you know the Bible and you don't know Jesus. I will, I will concede this point to the atheist. Sometimes the criticism of the atheist is people do horrible things in the name of the Bible. I would say, if you know the Bible and you don't know Jesus, this is how you behave. The answer is not to not know the Bible. The point of the Bible is to introduce you to Jesus. The whole point of the Bible is that you would know Jesus, that you would love Jesus, that you would be changed by Jesus, that you would become like Jesus, and you wouldn't just read the Bible and treat people the way that the people who read the Bible treated Jesus. You can know the Bible and not know Jesus. Now, you need to know the Bible to know Jesus. Satan knows the Bible, he doesn't love Jesus. The religious leaders know the Bible. They don't love Jesus. You will be an evil person if you know the Bible and you don't know Jesus because you'll miss the whole point of the Bible. That's exactly tragically what's happening. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. He's not our king. He said he's our king. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Live with it. I want you to see that this is legal and there's a lot that's going on politically behind the scenes. The reason that the religious leaders are pressing for Jesus to be crucified is because they want him to die in the most shameful, painful, and public of ways. The Jewish people did not have the legal authority to crucify someone, only the Romans did. So the Jews want him crucified, but they can't crucify him. Or I should say the religious leaders want him crucified Again, let's not forget the fact, I wanna be careful with this, Jesus is Jewish. His first followers are Jewish. The early church is Jewish. There are some who absolutely love Jesus. There are others who were religious. Those are the people we're talking about. That being said, they could not execute him by a crucifixion. So they are pushing, they're, they're, they're exercising political pressure on Pilate to execute Jesus by crucifixion. Now, what's interesting, we looked last week in John 19, the reason that they are executing Jesus, murdering him, they said, because he has violated our law. The law that they say Jesus was violating was Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. And it said, anyone who blasphemes will be put to death, if you were here or remember, put to death how? By stoning. 
What are they trying to do to Jesus? Crucify. Now, what they are saying is, Jesus blasphemes because he says he's God. Okay, Jesus did say he was God, but he's not blaspheming, he's actually testifying. He would be blaspheming if he was lying, but he is testifying because he is truth telling. The same verse that they quote, they are violating it on two occasions. Number one, they are saying that Jesus is not God. That's blasphemy. Number two, if Jesus were guilty of blasphemy, God expressly commanded them to put someone to death by stoning and they're going to crucify him. They're violating on two accounts the verse that they quote to murder Jesus. It's demonic, it's hypocrisy. This is the essence of religion. Grace for me, law for you. You need to obey everything the word of God said. We, however, have commentators that have given us exceptions to the rule. This is legal, this is shameful, this is global. The fact that Jesus' declaration to be king is given in three languages is because it is the intent of God that this good news would go out to the nations of the world. This is a global declaration. And this is, to state the obvious, incredibly painful. Crucifixion is so painful that we invented in the English language a word to articulate suffering in this degree and kind. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. Think of it in our day, when someone is suffering, we try to do all we can to alleviate and lessen the suffering, right? How many of you have seen someone you love die? Recently had the anniversary of the death of Grace's dad, the kid's grandpa. We put someone in a hospital, we give them you know, lots of painkillers. We try to lessen their suffering. Even when someone is executed by lethal injection, they're essentially put to sleep and the medical attempt is to reduce the suffering as much as possible. The exact opposite is what's happening here. The exact opposite is exactly what is happening here. This is as much pain as is possible. And the issue is this, Jesus says he's a king. And you know what? He is. He's the king of kings. And he said earlier in John's gospel, my kingdom is not of this world. So our king came down and what our king is doing is he is opening his kingdom to you and me. And when Jesus is suffering and dying, I don't want you to see him as a victim. I want you to see him as a victor. He told us earlier in John's gospel, chapter 10, I think it's around verse 28. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I pick it up in my own authority. Jesus is not a victim, he's a victor. He's a humble king who knows that we are rebels and he comes to forgive us, to open up his kingdom to us because our king is that good. The story continues, next slide please. Jesus died to fulfill scripture. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. Imagine you're present and not only do they strip Jesus nearly naked, they're taking his possessions. They don't even walk the possessions over to give them to his mother. In addition, he had one article of clothing. It was more valuable, the tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots or roll dice to see who gets it. 
They're gonna murder God and gamble for his coat. This was to fulfill the scripture. The Bible is from God. The Bible is perfect. The Bible is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. It is astonishing to me that anyone would put the Bible in the same category of any other spirituality, religion, ideology, or philosophy. 25% of the Bible, when it was written, was prophetic in nature, predicting the future and preparing God's people for it. No other religion has any prophecy like the word of God. I didn't know this until I was a brand new Christian in college. I got saved reading the Bible that grace gave me. I joined one of my first Bible studies with a pastor who is a wonderful man that I thank God for. And I'm sitting in a circle with a couple of other college guys and he takes months and he starts us in Genesis He walks us through the entire Old Testament showing prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that all came true because this book is perfect and the author of this book rules human history. I couldn't believe it. Jesus is born of a woman. He's born of a virgin. He's born in Bethlehem. He's born when the temple existed that would make it before 70 AD historically, that he would be crucified between two thieves, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb post-mortem, that he would rise as the forgiver of sin and the giver of life. It's all in there hundreds and thousands of years before it actually occurred. Uh, Wilbur Smith says this in his book, The Incomparable Book. He says that the Bible is the only volume ever produced in which is to be found a large body of prophecies. The ancient world had many different devices for determining the future known as divination, but not the entire gamut of Greek and Latin literature, even though they used the words prophets and prophecy, can we find any real specific prophecy of a great historic event to come in the distant future, nor any prophecy of a savior to arise in the human race. Speaking of Islam, he says, they cannot point to any prophecies of the coming of Muhammad uttered hundreds of years before for his birth, neither can there be found any cult rightly identified with any ancient text specifically foretelling their appearance. Here's what he is saying. The Bible, thousands of prophecies. Everything else, zero. Zero. To me, that is among the strongest arguments for the divine authorship and the perfection of the word of God. And what it says here. Uh, This, go back please. This was to fulfill the scriptures which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is simply one example of the fulfillment of prophecy from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written about a thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth. Next slide, please. And it says this in verses one and then also verses 16 through 18. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that? Jesus, where did he say that? On the cross. What is Jesus doing at his death? He's quoting the scriptures. Friends, here's what I want you to know. You need to trust the scriptures on your last day. On your last day, you need to be able to quote with confidence in faith, the word of God. You believe by faith and then you will see by sight that everything that the Bible says about your eternal destiny is true. 
the most important day of your life is the last day. This is the last day of Jesus' life and the last thing on Jesus' mind, the last thing in Jesus' heart and the last words on Jesus' lips are the scriptures. Jesus is a Bible guy. That's what I'm telling you. On your last day, you need to trust that God says you are forgiven if you belong to Christ. That God says you will conquer Satan's sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God if you belong to Christ. You need to trust that to live is Christ, to die is gain. That Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if you belong to Jesus, this life is as close to hell as you will be. And all that awaits you is joy in his presence forever. You and I need to trust the word of God until we see the God of the word. My God, my God, why have, you, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? It is predicting the suffering of Jesus. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircle me. They have what? Pierced what? Hands and feet. I told you at the beginning of the sermon, crucifixion was invented by the Persians about 800 BC. That is 200 years after Psalm 22. Not only does Psalm 22 predict the crucifixion of Jesus, it predicts the invention of crucifixion. And it predicts that Jesus would have the nails driven through the hands and feet. Let me just say this, that's specificity. That's specificity. I can count all my bones. We'll look at that in a moment where none of his bones will be broken. They stare and gloat over me, speaking of his enemies. They divide my garments among them and for my, my clothing rather, they what? They cast lots. Let God be true, let every man be a liar. All scripture is God breathed, true, profitable, and points to Jesus, okay? Friends, that's why our sermons take a while. I'll be honest with you. And if you're here, you're like, are we done? No, that's the introduction. Now we'll get into the sermon. <laughs> that's why we're 42 weeks into John's gospel. You know why? I want you to know the word of God and I want you to know the God of the word. And I want you to learn the Bible and I want you to grow in confidence that you can know the Bible for yourself. Okay, so thank you for the honor of teaching. The story continues in John. We see Jesus' two families, his physical and his spiritual. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, okay? How many of you ladies have a son? Mamas? Okay, when your baby boy was born, I'll never forget the look on Grace's face, right? Exhausted joy. It was a, it was, it was a conflux of mixed emotions. So mamas, you held your son, What's the first thing you counted? Fingers and toes. Look at that little hand. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. You pick up their feet. You're like, they're so little. Look at those little toes. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. When they're little, you blow on their feet. You kiss their feet. You blow on their hands. They put their hand on your face. Here's Jesus, Mother Mary the 10 fingers, the 10 toes that she counted on her baby boy are now nailed to a Roman cross. You ladies identify with her anguish? We tend to miss the humanity in all of this. With her is her sister. How many of you are the aunt? 
you say, I'd be there to emotionally support my, my sister. Where's Jesus' brothers and sisters? They're not there because they're not believers yet. How many of you, the moment that you needed your family the most, they were not there for you? Where's Jesus' dad? We don't know. Early in Luke and Matthew, we meet Joseph, Jesus' daddy. Great guy. Hardworking, blue collar. Adopted Jesus. Yeah, God was adopted and God adopts people into his family too. That's how he does it. Joseph is present until basically right around the early teen years of Jesus. And then he's no longer mentioned. Many think that Mary was a widow and a single mother with a lot of kids. Can imagine if if that is the case, she got Jesus through the teen years and through the twenties and now he's in his thirties and he's got a ministry and he's on his feet and he's doing well and his ministry's growing. She's probably thinking, got that one launched. That was good. And here he's being crucified. Some of you parents that have pain from adult children, you can identify with Mary, amen? Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his, he's being crucified. He sees his, sees his mom. He sees his mom. And the disciple whom he loved, who's that? It's John. The same John who writes this book was there as an eyewitness. 2,000 years later, people will have speculation. I would just encourage you to trust eyewitness testimony. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her as to his own home. This tells me everything I need to know about John. If you are dying and you're looking at your mom, say, John, I need you to take my place and be like a son. And mom, I need John to be your pastor. This is spiritual family. Jesus knows that John is loving and faithful. And let me tell you this, Jesus was not a mama's boy, but Jesus did love his mom. And he's very open and public about his love for his mother. And in assigning John to care for his mother, it tells me that he trusts John more than he even trusts his own brothers because they are not yet believers. They will become believers. James and Jude go on to write books of the Bible bearing their name. History outside of the Bible says his third brother, Simon, also became a pastor and, 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 and devout disciple of Jesus. But at this point, they're not yet believers, not till after the resurrection. Proverbs 18.24 says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's John. And what we see in this, I want you to see this pattern of three people who were following Jesus. Judas was a man who was following Jesus externally, but not internally. What did he eventually do? He stopped following Jesus. He literally walked away and hung himself. 
there was someone else that we looked in the storyline and he followed Jesus, but he followed from a safe distance because he didn't want to be in harm's way. Who was that? Peter. And then here we see two who are walking step in step closely with Jesus, John and Mary Magdalene. These are your three options. Walk away from Jesus, walk with Jesus at a distance, basically as a compromised Christian, or walk with Jesus closely, publicly identifying yourself with him, willing to endure whatever that cost might be. And God shows two examples here, John and Mary, because he wants men and women to be devout followers and to stick close to Jesus. And this is a great honor for women because in that day, women weren't generally considered disciples. Everybody else is fled, everybody else is scared. Mary's still there and so is John. And they know that they could suffer the same fate of Jesus, but they love Jesus so much that they wanna be emotionally present for him and with his mother. The story continues. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to what? Fulfill the scripture. Okay, I'm just gonna say this. You need to be in the word of God. You need the word of God in you. So much of our life is wasted. I, I, you know, I've never been at the deathbed of someone and they said, I just wish I had time for more Fortnite. I just wished I could have finished the Netflix season. If I could have just clicked through all the videos on YouTube, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to increase my, my followers on Facebook. It's my worst regret. If I had it to do all over again. No, it's the word of God and the people of God. That's, that's the internal investment. There was an old Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he said, some people have so much dust on their Bible, they could write damnation on it with their finger. Jesus is focused on his mission and he's focused on the fulfillment of scriptures. And he says, I thirst. That's a quote from Psalm 69.1. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch stick and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The other gospels say that he declared in a loud triumphant victory, it is finished. Now, when I first read this as a new Christian in college, reading through the entire Bible for the first time, I remember sitting, I think it was in my dorm and reading this and thinking, well, that was a nice thing to do. This just shows that people do have a, a good heart. We all make mistakes, but people are good and they have a good heart. Jesus is suffering and the Roman soldiers gave him a drink. That was nice. I've since been cured of that illusion. See, in our relationship with God, we always think, well, somebody needs to be good. Let me just tell you, it ain't you. We were in Turkey in the archeological ruins and excavation of the ancient city of Ephesus. I made the trip previously. We brought Grace and the kids. We were down into the excavation uh, some of our friends that were on the trip with us are probably here today, and maybe you remember this as well. I'll never forget, we were down in the archaeological dig in ruins with a professor, and they showed us this public restroom, big marble toilets, and it was kind of a big rectangle. And I was like, well, this is weird. What's this? He's like, it's, a, it's an ancient bathroom. He said, you'd sit on the marble seat and go to the bathroom, and there was a waterway system that 
would sort of flush it away. And then under your seat, there was a hole. And what a slave would do, they would take a sponge, they'd put it on the end of a branch, and then they would use that to scrub you. That was your toilet paper. But then people started getting infected and they realized it had bacteria. So they would sop it in wine vinegar as a disinfectant, as an antiseptic. And I remember John's gospel. I literally started crying. I just about passed out. I asked him, I said, sir, is that what they shoved in Jesus' mouth? And he said, I I don't know. I hadn't really thought of it. He's like, yeah. He said, because the Roman soldiers, when they would have a field kit and they would go out into battle, part of their field kit was a sponge for going to the bathroom. And they just break off a branch. They would sop it in wine vinegar to clean it. And then they would use it to cleanse themselves. Do you remember, the theologians call this the seven words from the cross. Do you remember the first word that Jesus said? Father, forgive them. And then apparently a soldier took that sponge and shoved it in God's mouth to shut him up and to stop talking about forgiveness. With that taste in his lips, Jesus is then having a conversation perhaps with another thief who's being crucified and Jesus is trying to get him forgiven and loved before he goes to hell. And when Jesus says, it is finished, all the work of salvation is done. You don't need to reincarnate and pay God back. God came and paid your debt himself. You cannot add to the finished work of Jesus. People insult Jesus. I'll be a good person. I'll tithe. I'll get down on a rug and face these three times a day. Let me tell you, it's finished. And your contribution is an offense because it is saying that what Jesus did was insufficient and you will make it sufficient through your contribution and participation. You are saved by God. You are saved from God. You are saved for God. It is all God. Then we see very clearly that Jesus died. Since it was the day of preparation so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, so that the Sabbath was a high day, it was a holy day. A holiday means a holy day. The reason that they're pushing, 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 we need to get him dead before dinner. It's a holiday. We got to get home for Thanksgiving turkey. We got, it's Christmas Eve. We got to get home and, you know, have dinner with the kids and open the stockings. Now, if we wait to murder him till after the holiday, everybody will go home and this won't be as shameful and as public and as painful. So let's, let's, let's hurry this up and let's murder him publicly. Well, as many people are here, but we got to get it over by dinner because we're religious people and we need to get home for our holiday. Religion has no answer. Politics has no answer. This is the condemnation of politics and religion to be the answer to the human problem. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The reason that they would break the legs is to hasten the death. 
right? You push yourself up, you get air in your lungs. Well, if we break your legs, you can't push yourself up, you die quicker. We looked in John 19 that it was the sixth hour when they started the death of Jesus. That's noon. God reckons the day starting in the evening, Genesis day one, evening and morning, day two, evening and morning. Some people ask, well, how could Jesus be in the grave three days if he died on a Friday, rose on a Sunday? Well, because for the Jews, if you, if you die Friday during the day, that's one day, then at sundown, the next day begins. And so he's in the grave Friday, he's in the ground, Saturday, he's in the ground, Sunday, the day of resurrection, that's the third day, that's the day he rises. That's why we meet on a Sunday, it's the day of Jesus' resurrection. Again though, they're worried about violating their religious rules for who can be considered outwardly clean and they overlook the internal. This is the problem with religion. It looks at the outward, not the inward. They're trying to get the men's legs broken. I mean, how cruel is this? You've already died. Hey, by the way, one last request. Can we break their legs? Could you guys break their legs for us? Because you know, God would look unfavorably if we broke the legs, so why don't you do it? But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, what? They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Executioner runs a spear up, punctures the heart sack, water and blood flow. Jesus literally and physically and emotionally and spiritually dies of a broken heart. And once there came out blood and water, he who saw this is born witness, his testimony is true. John saying, trust me, I was there. This is exactly what happened. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. The point of all of the story of scripture, the point of the planting of this church, the point of our gathering together today is that you would believe in this Jesus, that you would believe in this Jesus. My job is to passionately, lovingly, clearly tell you about Jesus. Your job is to make the most important decision you will ever make. For these things took place that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That is in fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46. The time is Passover. They're sacrificing the lambs. John 1, 29, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover lamb has been slain. In Exodus 12, 46, it said, do not break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover. Psalm 34, 20 said, he protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn and grieve. If I might point out the obvious, Jesus died. One of the most popular false teachings is something called the swoon theory, which is the stupid theory. And the stupid swoon theory says, Jesus didn't die, he passed out. And then he woke up later. Let's just revisit the facts. Beaten all night, scourged beyond recognition, crucified, spear through your heart, wrapped in upwards of 100 pounds of burial linens and spices in a nearly mummified state, put in a cold, 
tomb hewn out of rock with no medical attention for three days, large stone put over the front, seal of the Roman government, soldier on guard, you wake up, take your burial wrappings off, are strong enough to move the stone, get rid of the soldier and walk into town. That's the stupid theory. <laughs> Jesus died. Amen? I mean, this is crazy, but here's the point. It's so historically obvious, we have to posit something that is insane. And other people are like, well, I don't wanna believe in Jesus, so I'll believe in that. You have tremendous faith in the wrong object. That's like trusting a rock instead of a life preserver when you're in the ocean. Your faith is real, but not real helpful. You have the wrong object of your faith. I digress. So in conclusion, Jesus died. Question, why? So looking back on this fact, <clears throat> the authors in the New Testament use a little word with big implications, for. And they call this good news. How could this be good news? Isaiah 53, five, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We looked at all the historical facts. It was done for our sin. Jesus got what you deserve and he gives you what you do not deserve. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our transgressions or our trespasses. One of my favorites, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The early church creed, 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution. The cross of Jesus is the revelation of both God and humanity. At the cross, we see who God is and we see who we are. So let me make this plain. And I, I say you, but I include myself in the number. You are far worse than you think you are. You are far worse than you think you are. And Jesus is not only better than you think he is, he's better than you can think he is. Jesus loves you. Jesus came to forgive you. Jesus came to take the place of you. Jesus came to embrace you. Jesus came for a relationship with you that you may believe. On the cross with Jesus, two men were crucified. One rejected him, one received him. One went to hell and is right now experiencing the same kind of suffering that Jesus did. The other received Jesus and Jesus told him, today, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is crucified, two are with him. These are the only two options for you making a decision. Will you reject him and suffer? Will you receive him and his suffering? 
It all comes down to Jesus. It always comes down to Jesus. It only comes down to Jesus. And John is there face to face. And right now, spiritually, you are there face to face and you got a decision to make. At this point, we're gonna respond. I'm gonna call the ushers forward to collect our tithes and offerings and our prayer requests. Before we give God our best, we give God our worst. People always ask me, how much should I give? And I always say 100%. And they say, really? Of your sin. Before Jesus wants your best and just a percentage of your best, he wants your worst and 100% of your worst. So this is where we give our sin to Jesus and we give our tithes and offerings as worship to Jesus because we're grateful, amen? God so loved the world that he gave. Giving is a way of loving. As we collect our tithes and offerings, I'm gonna invite the band forward at this time as well. And I, I have no judgment on other churches. I have, I have no opinion on service orders, but let me just tell you how we do things here. We go deep in the word of God, amen? amen. We go deep in the word of God. And then I wanna give you an opportunity to emotionally and personally respond. So we take communion every week. It's because we need to be reminded of Jesus every week. And we want the cross of Jesus to be the center point of our service. We want the cross of Jesus to be the center point of our lives. We want the cross of Jesus to be the center point of our relationships. And so <clears throat> we take communion every week and we'll take it in just a moment. Any of you who are Christians or choose to walk with Jesus today, we take the bread, what does it remind us of? Jesus' broken body. We take the wine or juice, depending upon your conscience, and it reminds us of Jesus' shed blood. It reminds us of the cross. And just as John and Mary stood there with Jesus, when you get up to partake of communion, you are standing up for Jesus and you're standing up with Jesus. But before that moment comes, I want you to take a moment to meet with Jesus. Spend a little bit of time in prayer, contemplate. The Bible says to consider these things. Take a moment. And then when you're ready, partake of communion. And as you get out of your seats, remind yourself that Jesus also got out of his grave. Spoiler alert, come back next week. He comes back. It's amazing. It's going to be really great. And that's our hope as well. Amen. So that on the last day, we can quote the word of God. We can trust in the God of the word. We believe by faith till we see by sight who Jesus is and what he's done. Take a moment with him now. If you live in or are visiting the Greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.